where we're going through 1 Peter. We're going to pick it up from chapter 3 and verse 8. Let's pray together. Father, we pray now that as we come to your word that you would work in us so that we hear what you're saying. Father, please work in us too so that we respond to what you're saying. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Every moment of our lives, we are answering a question. In terms of the things that we do, the things that we don't do, the choices we make, we're answering the question, what kind of life do I want to live? And over the course of our life, we are building a life made up of those decisions, many of them very small, the day-to-day decisions, and some of them are big. We're building a life. So what kind of life are you building? What kind of life would you like to build? Well, if you're anything like me, I want to have a life that's good. I want to have a life that's enjoyable. I want to have a life that's a good, good fulfilled life. There's a wonderful phrase in chapter 3 and verse 10 where Peter is quoting from the Old Testament and he's quoting from Psalm 34. And the psalmist there says, whoever would love life and see good days, love life, see good days. Isn't that a great phrase? We want to love life. I want to be able to look at my life and say, I love my life. I love the friendships I have. I love the relationships I have. I love the opportunities that face me. I love the things that I'm doing. And I look forward to good days, that is, that the life that I have will continue into the future, to love life and live good days. Isn't that the kind of life that you want? Isn't that the kind of life that you're trying to build, create, develop, preserve. Of course, we're followers of Jesus, so we would want to add add the God bit, wouldn't we? Love life, live good days, have the blessing of God on our life, the smile of God on our life, that he smiles at what we're doing, the choices that we're making, and so on. Love life, live good days. Welcome to the paradox of Christianity. See, when Peter quotes from Psalm 34, whoever would love life and see good days, and then goes on to say, the eyes of the Lord are on such people, he's writing into a particular context. He is writing to people who've been given new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. They've been given new life. And he's saying to them, I want you to live out this life. And this life is countercultural. It will go against the flow. There will be points at which living as followers of Jesus Christ will take us in a completely different direction from the life that we once lived and the life that we see being lived out by our contemporaries. It is countercultural, and it will be a life that's marked to a greater or lesser degree as a result by suffering. There's the paradox. 
There's the paradox of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Love life, live good days, involves living a countercultural life that will lead to suffering. And in fact, in chapter 4 and verse 1, Peter says if you're suffering because you're a follower of Jesus, not, not because of just the sufferings everybody else suffers, if you're suffering because you're a follower of Jesus, that's a good sign. Be encouraged because, as he puts it in chapter 4, verse 1, whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. It's a marker that you're a follower of Jesus and that your faith in Jesus is genuine because you're suffering as a result of being a follower of Christ. Isn't that a paradox? Love life. Live good days. See, when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you encounter the paradox of Christianity. It will set you on a course of life that at times seems so counterintuitive, so ridiculous, so crazy to your family and friends, and sometimes even to you, that you'll wonder what you're doing. You'll ask yourself the question at times, is this a good thing to be doing? Is this the right thing? Is this really what it means and involves for me to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Am I out of my mind to do this? I look at people who live around me, and I look at the life that I used to live, the reflected theirs, and I see the kind of lives that they're living, and I look at my life and what's involved in following Jesus Christ, and I think, what on earth am I doing? To enter the world of following Jesus Christ is to enter a way of life that is so upside down that it means that all the things that we used to take for granted about how life should be done and what constitutes living well, it just gets thrown around and turned upside down. And there are times when people will think we're crazy. And so in chapter 4 and verse 4, he speaks of the people around and says, they're surprised that you don't join them. Do you... Notice the implication there. They're surprised because the way that Peter is expecting followers of Jesus to live is so different from the life of those around them. The crazy world of discipleship. Did you sign up for that? crazy world of discipleship, did you? Last week we looked at three specific areas. Emperors, government, society. Slaves, work. And wives. This week we're going to look at three general areas where discipleship needs to manifest itself. Number one, how we treat people. Have a look at chapter 3 and verse 8. All of you be like-minded. That is, you, you need to be on the same page here. It's really important. Be sympathetic. Love one another. Be compassionate and humble. Don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. How we treat people as followers of Jesus Christ is counter-cultural. That expresses a different way of treating people from the way 
that society does and that we're encouraged to. Does it ring any bells, by the way? You biblical experts, ring any bells? What Peter's saying here? Ding, 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 ding. Jesus, perhaps. The answer's always Jesus, isn't it? To every question. Do you remember the words of the Lord Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount? Chapter 5 in Matthew, verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when people insult and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. It's the same kind of thing, isn't it? Peter learned well from Jesus, didn't he? How we treat people needs to be counter-cultural. And notice you find this in the, not just the teaching of Jesus, but in the example of Jesus. So chapter 2 and verse 23 that we looked at last week, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. See it played out in the life of Jesus. And Peter picks this up again, this how we treat people as being countercultural. In verse 15, of chapter 3, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Speak of Jesus, that is, speak of the hope that you have that God has given you through Jesus that has come to you through his resurrection. But notice how they are to do it with gentleness and respect. I have experienced some people speaking about Jesus with great vigor and conviction and with precious little gentleness and respect. See, when we speak about Jesus, we're speaking about ourselves and what he's done for us, and we're speaking out of a right assessment of ourselves. We understand that we have received God's mercy. We are no better than the people we're speaking to. We have no rights above theirs. All that we have has been given to us by gift from a gracious God who has shown us Peter's word is mercy. And so out of that sense of our own profound dependence upon God, as Peter puts it in verse 16, keeping a clear conscience, having a right view of ourselves, we speak with gentleness about Christ. And we do that so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Does that ring any bells? There's a theme in Peter, isn't there? That they may see your good works and glorify your Father on the, uh, glorify God on the day that he visits us. The people should so see in the way that we live, including what we say, something of what Christ has done for us so that people turn to Christ. That they may be ashamed. People will see our lives, hear what we say, hear how we speak, and it will lead to them changing. They will be ashamed of what they previously thought and turn in repentance to Jesus Christ. Well, there's something else going on in that. There's also that reminder that one day things will be reversed, one day they will be ashamed. Because if they don't repent, they'll realize when it's too late, when they stand before Christ, that to speak against Christians is to speak against Christ, is to blaspheme against God, and they will be held accountable for that. And on that day, things will be reversed and they will be ashamed. Christianity is countercultural because of in the way that we treat people. It's countercultural in what we say yes to. 
the desires, the motivations, the purpose of our lives. Verse 13, notice that phrase that we've seen it before. Peter talks about do good. In verse 14, do what's right. Verse 16, your good behavior. Verse 17, doing good. When he says those things, he is not simply saying, now, I want you to live a good life in Willoughby. Obey the law. Pay your taxes. Be a good neighbor. That's not what he's talking about, although you should do those things. When he talks about doing good or what's right, he's saying do the God thing. Do what honors him. Obey him and the context, even though that may lead to suffering. Doing what pleases God. Our lives should so speak of the new life that we have in Christ that people see that. But we also need to speak about it. Do you know that? Notice verse 15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Peter says at the beginning in chapter 1, we've been given a living hope in contrast to the dead hopes of people around us. When people get excited and talk about something, what are the kinds of things they talk to you about? You meet up with somebody you've not seen for a bit, or you, you meet up with a neighbor and you catch up with them and say, how are things going? What are the things they talk about? Well, it's true, sometimes they may talk about things that are not going very well, and some people only ever talk about the things that are not going well, of course. But in my experience, people will talk about the holiday they've just been on, the holiday they've about to go on, the house that they've just bought, the house that they've just sold, the house that they've just demolished and they are rebuilding, the new job that they've got, the new partner that they've just got, uh, the prospects for the future, the size of their superannuation pot, whatever it is. We think of good things to talk about, things that inspire us. The thing that should, in that should inspire the believer in Jesus Christ more than anything else is that living hope that God has given us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So when people speak to us, and when we're talking, when we're in conversation with them, what should always spring to the surface is the living hope that we've got. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you. By the way, people, that does not just mean, uh, please tell me why you're a Christian, and you only ever speak when that comes up. It's about the hope that you have. And the hopes that we have are so different. So, how should the Christian life be different following Jesus? How we treat people? What we say yes to and then what we say no to. Please will you turn to chapter 4 and verse 3. I love this. Here Peter is describing what you should say no to in society. Ah, look at this. Debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Followed by, in the next verse, reckless, wild living. I have not come across a better description of life in Willoughby. Anyway. <laughs> Isn't that just so true? You walk down the high street and you see reckless living all over the place. Debauchery. Orgies going on as you go into the coffee shop. 
That's just so Willoughby, isn't it? It's not, is it? So you see, the danger is that we read this and we say, actually, we don't have any big problems saying no to orgies. They're not the kind of things that happen generally in Willoughby or even in Linfield. Or this wild carousing or reckless living, all those kinds of things. And so, so we feel good, don't we? Because we say no to those things, along with most people in Willoughby. The really important thing for us to address is not how successfully we avoid the excesses of the first century, but how we avoid those in the 21st century, in the places where we live and amongst the communities that we live amongst. So here's the question. We need to ask, what are the principles that are at work here in 1 Peter, and then how do those principles manifest themselves in Willoughby? Well, look at what he says. He talks about evil human desires rather than the will of God. Chapter 4 and verse 2. They follow evil human desires. That is, desires that are not focused around God. Anything that's a desire that drives our life, that we follow, if it's not directed towards God, it is evil by definition. They follow evil human desires rather than the will of God. If you want to, another way of putting it, you could say their life is characterized by self-gratification. And that will have different expressions at different times and in different places. So the really important question is what does self-gratification look like in Willoughby? And how successful are we at avoiding those manifestations? And there I think we might be in more trouble. Because you see, the thing is that when we look at self-gratification in Willoughby, a lot of the time it will look very normal. Because most people are doing that. Living their life according to their own desires rather than the will of God. In fact, it may seem very wholesome. But Peter's saying, life in Willoughby, that is, lived according to the Willoughby way, rather than obedience to the will of God, is on a par with debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. To live the Willoughby way is to live a life of reckless idolatry. The important question we need to ask is, what does self-gratification look like in Willoughby? And how successful are we at turning away from those things? Another sermon. But think about it. If I had to say one thing that I think is probably the most significant, it's our affluence. It's around the arena of our affluence. 
and the desire to lead a Willoughby-style lifestyle, a lifestyle that matches those around us. Another sermon. But I suspect that's really challenging for us. So, three things here. How we treat other people is countercultural if we're followers of Jesus, and that may lead to suffering. What we say yes to will be countercultural, and that may lead to suffering. What we say no to will be countercultural, and that may lead to suffering. And that's the problem, isn't it? There's the rub. Because we don't like pain, do we? Not just physical pain that we want to avoid, but material pain, emotional pain, financial pain. We don't want that. And there's the challenge. We're going to be followers of Jesus Christ. It's going to involve suffering to a greater or lesser degree. Well, Peter now gives us some encouragements and some prompts if we're to do this. Number one, Christ is Lord, so revere him as Lord. Sometimes you come across people who do really crazy things, you know, extreme sports, all kinds of things, or, or, or they do the most extraordinary things in the terms of the way that they, they use their life. Remarkable. Sometimes it's because they're gripped by an idea. Sometimes they've been inspired by some need. The Christian is somebody who's been gripped by Jesus. Christianity is not first and foremost about being gripped by a religion or a set of practices or even a moral code or a religious code by a set of beliefs about God. It is being gripped by Jesus so that he becomes and is our life and our hope. And he's the one we live for. And he's the one who inspires us. And he's the one we're willing to sacrifice for because Jesus has gripped our hearts. It doesn't come out first and foremost of a sense of obligation. It comes out first and foremost about a sense that God has loved me in Christ. And when we do that, when we recognize that's who Jesus is, then the way that the Bible often talks about expressing that is to say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord means he's my life. He's my everything. He's my hope. Hope for my past, my present, and my future. And my life belongs to him. Christianity is not something that you add to your life. It is your life because Christ is your life. And so Peter says in chapter 3, um, verse 13, 15, in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. When you became a follower of Jesus Christ, you said, Jesus is Lord, now revere him. Continue to do that every day. Tomorrow morning you get up and you say, how can I revere you as Lord? As I go to work and in my relationships at work and the things that I do and the things that I say, anything. You just go on and on, keep asking the question, how can I revere Christ as Lord? It needs to be a daily question it needs to be an ongoing lifestyle that affects our relationships, how we treat other people, what we say yes to, and what we say no to. How can I revere you as Lord? Are there some things I need to say no to? Are there some things I need to say yes to? Do I need to say yes in a bigger way than I did last week? 
If we want the smile of God on our life, then we need to revere Christ as Lord in our hearts. Number one, Christ is Lord, so revere him as Lord. Number two, Christ is victorious, so don't be afraid. Verse 13 of chapter 3. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? God is with us. That's what that quotation from Psalm 34 says in verse 12. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God's with us. Be encouraged. And Peter now gives some really specific things that should encourage us. And they come out of what Christ has done. Chapter 3 and verse 18. He says, he reminds them and us that Christ, through his death and in his resurrection, has brought us to God. Verse 18. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. We've been brought into a relationship with God. God is now your Father. It means that God loves you now because of Christ as much as he loves Jesus. So don't be afraid. Christ has brought you to God. Secondly, Christ has saved us, and he uses the example of Noah in verses 20 and 21. Maybe the story was a particular favorite in that region of Turkey, as we would call it today. He's probably using a well-known version of that story that we find in the Bibles in Genesis 6. He's probably using a version that appears in a document called the Book of Enoch. Now, what is it about the story of Noah and the flood? Well, one of the things about it is it's such a dramatic story, isn't it? Of all the stories in the Bible, the rescue of Noah and his family through this cataclysmic flood is probably the most dramatic rescue story in the whole Bible. And there are certain similarities with the situation facing people's readers. At the time of Noah, evil was rampant. It had the, the upper hand. There was a terrible darkness to the evil. There was a supernatural dimension to it that had gripped the whole of mankind. That's what Peter's referring to when he talks in verses 19 and 20 to those in spirit, those imprisoned spirits who were disobedient. These supernatural entities who got involved in the life of human beings and corrupted them. Evil was rampant. There seemed to be no end to the evil. It just went on and on. But something was happening. Noah was building an ark. Day after day, Noah's building an ark. It goes on, on. It's a fairly big thing. It goes on year after year. It must have seemed utterly preposterous. But Noah is building an ark, and God is being patient while he waits for Noah to build the ark so that he can rescue Noah and his family. Something is happening. God is planning a rescue. The story of Noah is above all a rescue story about how God rescues his creation from evil by destroying that evil in the flood. But above all, it's about how God rescued Noah and his family. The waters of the flood didn't destroy Noah. God rescued him and the other seven through the waters of judgment. Well, that's the story. So what's the point Peter is making here? Because that was then and this is now. That was the story of Noah and it's really dramatic and most of us don't have events like that in our lives, do we? When did you last have a Noah rescue? 
Peter's point is this. The rescue of Noah in the Bible is the most dramatic rescue story in the Bible. But the rescue that we have received through Jesus and his resurrection is bigger. Have you got that? Our rescue through the resurrection of Jesus Christ is bigger than the rescue of Noah through the judgment of the flood. Even greater. So God has rescued us, not through the flood this time, but through baptism. Verse 20, 18 all were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he's not talking about baptism as a mere ritual. It's not, as he puts it, the removal of dirt from the body. But baptism is an acted pledge. In baptism, we are symbolizing the fact that we pledge our lives to God. We acknowledge his lordship and we promise that we will live out this new life that he gives us in Christ. So Peter's point is don't be intimidated. Don't be frightened about living this new life, even though there's suffering because you've experienced God's salvation. You have been saved. You are being saved and you will be saved. We've been brought to God by Christ. He's our Father. We've been saved and we are being saved. And Christ is victorious over every power. So in verse 19, he talks about how in his resurrection, that is in the Spirit, he goes and Christ goes and proclaims victory to those spirits in the past, those forces of evil that caused so much mayhem. He declares his victory. And it ends with verse 22, which announces that Christ is in the position of power and authority over everything. Verse 22, Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Don't be afraid because Christ is above every power. So, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to live this kind of life. Let me pull all this together. I started off by saying, Christ is Lord, so revere him as Lord. Live it out. Christ is victorious, so don't be afraid. Here's the last thing. This world is passing away, so don't waste your life on it. Verse 7 of chapter 4. The end of all things is near. The end of all things is near. This way of doing life that's outside of Jesus Christ is passing away. You've wasted enough of your life on that. Some of you have wasted decades living your life like that. Verse 3. You've already spent enough time in the past, doing what the pagans choose to do. Don't go back to that. It's passing, and it's under God's judgment. I know it doesn't look like that. I know it looks as if people who sacrifice their lives to follow Jesus Christ look as if they're missing out. And I know that people in Willoughby really don't understand that kind of life and think it's absurd or worse. 
But actually, they've got it the wrong way around. Verse 5 of chapter 4. Those who are outside of Christ will have to give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. Living and the dead means everybody. Death's not an escape. For this reason, the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. What does that mean? It simply means this. There are people who've heard the gospel. The gospel was preached to them and they became followers of Jesus Christ and they started following him and there was a cost and they never received vindication in this life. They were laughed at all their life. Maybe they lost their job because they were followers of Jesus. There was never any vindication. And so they were judged according to the body. That is, in this life, will it be judged them? First century society judged them. But there's a day coming when that's going to be reversed, you see. When God's affirmation will be given to people like that and God's condemnation on those who reject Christ. That's what he means by, but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. They will receive God's affirmation. This life is passing. This world is passing. Rather, Don't waste your life on it. So, Christ is Lord. Revere him as Lord. Christ is victorious. Don't be afraid. This age is passing. Don't waste your life. And then he finishes with two things that he says that we should do. And the first one is to pray. Verse 7, chapter 4, Therefore be alert and sober-minded so that you might pray. Why? Because we need God, that's why. If you're going to live this kind of life, we need God, so pray. And we need each other. We need God, so pray. We need each other, so Love each other. Verse 8, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. We will have such a commitment to each other in the body of Christ that we will not allow sin to destroy our relationships. It doesn't mean covering over sin. It means dealing with it so it doesn't destroy relationships. That's the kind of love we are to have. We're to use our homes for the cause of Christ where we can. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Our homes should be mission outposts. If, we're, if you're a husband and a wife and you're both Christians, your home should be a mission outpost. Your children should be part of that mission. We are to serve each other. Verse 10, each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks they should do so, speak as one who speaks the very word of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, devoted to serving each other. You see, we need God, so pray, and we need each other if we're to live this kind of life. So that, verse 11, in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. That our lives so speak of what God has done for us in Christ that it brings praise to God. And as a result of that, some people will come to faith in Jesus. But in any case, it will point to God, to whom, he says, be the glory and the power forever and ever. So what kind of life are you building? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would so write your word in our hearts that it becomes part of us and by your spirit 
you would help us to mold our lives so that our lives reflect what you've done for us in Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing as we conclude. Please would you stand.